Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Tuesday, October 27th. Coming up, clearing the healthcare backlog caused by the first wave of COVID-19. We've got a price tag. Quebec extending red zone restrictions for another month until November 23rd. And an Ontario dog is the first in Canada to test positive for COVID. That all coming up next here on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. Well, the backlog of surgeries and scans delayed by the first wave of COVID in Canada is enormous. And it might only be outdone by the cost of playing catch-up. The Canadian Medical Association, now with a new study today that suggests it will cost, how about this, north of a billion, north of a billion dollars to clear this backlog. Dr. Ann Collins is the president of the CMA and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Collins, good afternoon. Welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. All right. $1.3 billion is the estimate. How did the Canadian Medical Association arrive at that number? Well, we uh, commissioned this study to uh, create a baseline and a snapshot of a moment in time to see what the effect was of the first wave of the pandemic on the top six procedures performed in hospitals across the country. And you're right, $1.3 billion is a very troubling amount of money, figured, of course, on the number of procedures that were not done uh, when we were in uh, lockdown or slowdown during that first phase of the pandemic and just apply the cost for each one of those figures. So uh, it it gave us a starting point uh, and also sort of raised the whole Um, idea that this is a critical situation for those people that are on those waiting lists, and it's time to start tackling this problem. And when you say this is just a snapshot, a snapshot in time, I take it that that number, both the uh, backlog and the cost to clear that backlog, is growing? Well, as I say, it was just for the first wave of the pandemic. It does not take into account uh, what may be happening now in some hospitals and certainly what will uh, could happen if if we are full force into a second wave and and resurgences in smaller areas of the country so yes it's it's just for that april to june period of time so we could expect that we might see a backlog on this backlog um and, and so that's why it's so vitally important to have uh, the resources financially, and a, a plan going forward. All right. How long do you estimate it will take to clear just even the first uh, backlog, or is that impossible to uh, estimate? Again, that might depend on how much resources financially are available and just what that plan is to clear it. Absolutely. And also uh, the unpredictability of what lies ahead with this marathon without a finish line that we're calling the, the pandemic. And again, just to point out that this costing was done just on these six procedures, the diagnostic investigations and the surgical procedures. Does not speak to um, other delays that were created and caused uh, and have been caused throughout the pandemic around primary care, uh, missed appointments, missed uh, screening visits, missed immunizations, uh, and other surgical and diagnostic procedures that that will undoubtedly have a downstream effect on our system and most importantly on our Canadian patients. Yeah, for those that haven't had a chance to see or read the report, what are those six procedures, by the way, Doctor? 
So uh, they include coronary artery bypass grafting, or as we would call heart bypass surgery, cataract surgery, hip and knee replacements, MRIs, and CAT scans. So you can imagine if you're a Canadian who uh, had been waiting um, six months longer than you should have been waiting even pre-pandemic for a hip replacement, you're living with chronic pain, you're trying to manage that pain safely, you may not be able to get up the stairs in your house, and that's not going away anytime soon. It has a huge impact on your mental health as well as your physical health and on your families as well who see you, um, you know, experiencing this. So the $1.3 billion in no way can measure also the, the, um, the harm that, and uh, suffering that patients are incurring. Sure, and every Canadian who has had to wait obviously feels like their surgery is important and should be the priority, but who should be prioritized? I mean, can we make that uh, sort of uh, estimation? Is that how we should go about uh, clearing this backlog? So I think you're raising a very interesting point, because when we talk about addressing this backlog, it's not solely around the money, although we have put a very definite money ask into the federal government around this. But it also is an opportunity for us to discuss how we approach the delivery of health care in general. And, and we're living in a 1960s system. We're working in a 1960s system. How do we uh, in, engage um, innovative thinking and, and new ways of uh, treating conditions and, uh, and approaching surgical wait lists? So it's a multifactorial discussion. But this study is about these six issues and about making the ask to the federal government to to let's get this conversation started. Dr. Collins, did we make a mistake in uh, closing down a lot of hospitals during the first wave? Uh, As you well know, a lot of these uh, procedures just came to a uh, complete and uh, grinding halt. And is that something we've looked at during this uh, second wave? And do we have to prioritize or make sure that there are at least some hospitals that are continuing to do other work other than COVID? There have been lessons learned, uh, no question, from the first wave of the pandemic. Um, and we uh, hope that uh, there isn't a full closure like there was in, in the first wave of the pandemic. Um, this is, we've said this many times as we talk about the pandemic, it's a fluid situation. We're learning as we go. We follow the best public health protocols. And so it's also a good opportunity to remind all of us to do what we can do to prevent another, um, to prevent shutdowns, including in our hospitals. All right. Speaking of which, as you well know, the COVID numbers are spiking right across the country. And there are reports that some hospitals here in Toronto and in Peel region might be at 100% capacity. The health minister just uh, moments ago in the daily press briefing indicated that was the case, but did not name the hospitals. As the head of the CMA, just how concerned are you when it comes to hospital capacity right now as these COVID cases continue to grow? Well, that's been a concern all along with this pandemic. That's why we are discussing and seeing this backlog right now. Um, Concern always, first and foremost, is for the patients who need those hospital services, um, as well as patients who are going to need non-COVID care, and that will impact uh, their ability to access that care. So again, a real 
strong reminder to everyone to follow those public health protocols that we have heard. You know, your mask, your social distancing, reduce your bubble, wash your hands. It just, it's, it's so critically important to do what, what we can do on the outside of those hospitals to protect those people on the inside. For sure. But do you believe or do you think that we're maybe in a danger zone when it comes right now to the COVID caseload and hospital capacity? So what we look towards is what our public health officials are telling us and reminding us of every day. And certainly there are areas where we are, are, are getting close to uh, numbers that, um, that concern those who are providing inpatient care uh, with respect to capacity. And again, it speaks to our, the ability of our system to handle this pressure and this stress a system that was already stressed prior to the pandemic. Without a doubt. Dr. Collins, appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ann Collins is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. The Prime Minister warning today that uh, Christmas might have to be cancelled or put on hold. And in Quebec, they have just announced that red zone restrictions will be in place for another month there. Kind of makes you wonder if the uh, federal, Ontario, and Quebec health officials, are are they all reading the same stats? Are they all playing in the same or from the same playbook? Let's ask our good friend from uh, Montreal and uh, welcome uh, back to the show once again, Dr. Matthew Auden. He's an attending physician at the Jewish General Hospital at McGill University, and he joins us once again here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Auden, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Well, appreciate you coming back. Uh, First off, uh, remind us, uh, for those that aren't in Quebec or don't have the uh, color-coded system there, uh, what is and isn't allowed in a red zone there? So uh, in Quebec, the red zone restrictions are fairly similar to what in Ontario are called the modified uh, level 2 restrictions. So this includes things uh, like uh, uh, restricting contacts outside of your immediate household bubble. So that is to say that you shouldn't be going to visit other people at their homes. You know, that's based on the observations and the data from uh, public health uh, authorities that the large, uh, a large majority of the recent numbers of new cases have been transmitted through informal gatherings at home, you know, family get-togethers, parties, uh, things like that. So it's targeting the uh, one of the major sources of, uh, of new cases. At the same time, some uh, businesses, things like uh, uh, gyms, fitness centers, restaurants, uh, have all been uh, uh, closed down, whereas other uh, businesses, obviously, you know, some of the essential services, things like uh, uh, groceries and uh, pharmacies and so forth, uh, 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 continue uh, functioning more or less uh, as normally. Uh, is travel allowed outside the red zone? We we're hearing reports that uh, police were stationed in Quebec stopping travelers, uh, people in their cars, and asking them, asking them where they were headed, where they were going. So in the first uh, wave back in the springtime, uh, there were certainly those uh, checkpoints both within uh, uh, Quebec between uh, different uh, uh, regions that were under lockdown, as well as uh, at some points on the on the provincial uh, borders between uh, parts of uh, Quebec and Ontario, for example. This time around, to my understanding, it has it's. Uh, phrased as travel between regions is strongly discouraged, but I don't believe that uh, that this has gone to uh, beyond the point of strongly dec- discouraged to uh, the point of completely forbidden. 
All right, meantime, uh, what is behind the Quebec government's uh, decision to uh, extend uh, red zones there for another month? So uh, um, the initial red zones were announced on October uh, 21st, which is almost exactly four weeks ago, and they were proposed for a four-week uh, time period. And what we what we managed to achieve was, I guess I'd call it relative stability, not to say that that was a wonderful uh, uh, benchmark, because that uh, what relative stability meant was per day, uh, we were having somewhere between sort of 800, 900, 1,000 cases. So uh, although uh, stability is better than constant increases, that's still a pretty high number of new cases uh, per day. And the, uh, it seems as if the government felt that by extending these, uh, uh, these measures that uh, we could get the numbers down. I mean, it's uh, hard to imagine because it wasn't all that long ago, but there were points in August where there were fewer than 100 new cases in, uh, in Quebec a day, and obviously we're still far from that. Possibly part of the reason for this was that, of course, in this four-week period uh, and roughly two weeks ago, which is long enough back to have influence on these numbers, was uh, Canada's Thanksgiving. And uh, not just in Quebec, but certainly in many parts of Canada, it's felt that family get-togethers and, uh, uh, again, sort of uh, home-based get-togethers may have contributed to increasing numbers of cases at the same time that some of these restrictions should have been reducing the numbers of the cases, and maybe that why we get sort of a uh, relative stability. You know, it's almost as if you're stepping on the brake and stepping on the gas at the same time. Right. So having said that, and the thought is uh, here in Ontario as well, that uh, Thanksgiving, we're now seeing those numbers two weeks later, and that's why perhaps we set a daily record on the uh, weekend. First time we've been over a thousand cases uh, in a day in the province. Having said that, though, is the red zone restrictions, is this proof if even if numbers are just stabilizing, that they're actually uh, working. And is there a way, I mean, if community transition is the biggest problem and it's small at-home or in-home gatherings, is there really any way to kind of, I don't know, police that or crack down on it? So that's and that's been an ongoing, I think, topic of the, uh, discussion by the provincial government. Because yes, can you have people easily police what happens inside private uh, dwellings? And that's obviously been a pretty uh, hot topic because you can imagine the uh, uh, the protests that would ensue if you had uh, uh, police marching into uh, uh, people's private uh, homes or apartments. So I think you know I think we have to take a step back. Uh, the same measures that worked in the first wave, the physical distancing, the hand hygiene, the non-medical mask wearing, the avoiding crowded uh, situations, particularly indoors, all of those same measures still work if they are applied uh, consistently and at high levels you know, by, uh, by the majority of the population. So I think that the part of the effort needs to be to uh, redouble our efforts on those effective measures, uh, hopefully over the next four weeks, without a large family uh, holiday like Thanksgiving to uh, drive the numbers of new cases up. Hopefully we will see these numbers coming back down you know, well in advance of the uh, Christmas and winter holiday uh, season, because uh, as much uh, as difficult as it was to have limited contact with uh, family and friends and loved ones over Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, I think uh, you know the Christmas and winter holiday season would be even 
uh, a harder uh, um, experience for for uh, a large amount of the population to go through. Sure. Wanted to ask you about Christmas. Uh, here's the Prime Minister just a couple of hours ago. This is the first time that he has basically said that uh, Christmas is in danger. Uh, here was Prime Minister Trudeau. This sucks. It really, really does. <laughs> but we're going to get through it by doing what Canadians always do. By pulling together, by working hard, and by knowing that better days are coming. All right. It seems as if, Doctor, he is preparing us here that uh, Christmas might not be on the table for uh, Canadians. Is it too late to save Christmas, do you think? Hmm. I don't think it's too late, but this is a situation where you, if you think that part of the issue is to get sort of uh, high levels of compliance with these measures in the general community, then you need to make people understand what's at stake and how what we do now uh, at the, in the dying days of October uh, can have repercussions that will last several weeks, if not a few months uh, uh, later. So in other words, if we can get things well under control now and get things back to where we were in August, for example, that sets us up a lot better than if we continue to have these uh, sort of uh, high levels of uh, new community cases uh, every day. Uh, you know, the, sometimes I, I compare this to uh, the setting of uh, uh, forest fires, where all of these cases in the community represent individual small fires. Perhaps most of these cases in the community are not linked to many uh, transmission events, but the more small fires you have, the bigger the chances are that there will be a few flare-ups that can, those would be, I guess, in this analogy, we would call the super spreader events. And you want to get the community level, uh, the community cases controlled to avoid the risk of having these big flare-ups in vulnerable groups like we saw in the spring with the CHSLDs and the long-term care facilities in uh, in Ontario. Do you think that message is getting through what we do today affects our tomorrow? Because it sounds as if the Prime Minister is setting the table, if you will, for us not to set the Christmas table, the Christmas uh, dinner table. And I'm wondering, uh, with the Red Zone extension for a month, how is that being received there in Quebec? Uh, Spain and Italy, they are seeing anti-lockdown demonstrations. And we're also getting reports uh, from your area in Quebec there that there are some that uh, are rather bothered by the extension of these uh, Red Zones. Yes, there's been some uh, some uh, groups, uh, particularly uh, business owners uh, uh, for uh, gyms and fitness centers, who have said that they plan on openly defying the uh, public health laws about keeping their facilities uh, closed unless the government can prove that uh, their facilities are connected with uh, outbreaks. And it's uh, I think that's going to be a big challenge for uh, the government. And if the gyms and fitness centers uh, are able to do this and defy these laws openly, then I think that's opening the door for a lot of other businesses. Uh, again, I think sometimes people have to take a step back, remember that's what that uh, where we were at in the springtime, remember that this is still a highly transmissible virus, that there's still a lot we don't know about this. We do know that this disease can have consequences that are long-term and not just a couple of days of uh, fever and uh, and cough, even if you are otherwise well. You know, for example, there's studies that show that up to about 70% of people have some detectable cardiac damage 
uh, after an infection. And what are the long-term case uh, consequences of that? We don't know because we've only had this disease around in the population for seven or eight months. So uh, this is a setting where we still need to be careful and assume that there are uh, um, enough high enough rates of long-term complications to not take this lightly. All right, just finally, let me ask you, though, is there a balance that needs to be or could be struck here? I saw a Montreal yoga studio owner on the news earlier this morning suggesting that it's her moral duty to reopen. Those were her words because she said that uh, she's got clients that are begging her to open the doors, that their mental health is just suffering, that they can't continue on in their daily routines, and that uh, yoga is very physical and very spiritual. So sometimes when I hear these kinds of arguments, you know, uh, in the world of infectious diseases and infection prevention, I've often said that uh, prevention is often a thankless task because if you do a good job of preventing disease, all you have is a bunch of nothing to show people. You can show that there's uh, that there's no new cases, but that's not exactly a dramatic way to prove people uh, to the, that these measures are, are effective, right? People can say, well, we're doing all these measures and there's not that much of a problem, so maybe we can relax. But perhaps the reason why there's not a bigger problem is because of these measures that are in place. So uh, yeah, these some of these businesses are trying to sort of put the onus of proof on the government to say, prove that we're, uh, if you can't prove we're a danger, then we're probably safe. I think you could also flip that around and say, well, yeah, I think you have to prove that you are a very, uh, that that this this can be done in a very safe way, or else, given that this is a highly transmissible virus, we have to assume that there's still a uh, degree of risk. I mean, all of us heard of uh, that uh, uh, that case in Hamilton with the with the spin, uh, I think it was the spin cycle studio, uh, where there's been now something like 70 or 80 cases that have been connected to that one facility, for example. Yeah, and it only takes one, as we've said, it only takes one person to, uh, you know, shed the virus and infect so many others. Uh, Dr. Auden, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk down the road. Okay, thanks so much. Dr. Matthew Auden is with the Jewish General Hospital at McGill University, commenting on red zones being extended there, restrictions in red zones for another month in cities like Montreal and Quebec City. Okay, this is a concerning story for dog owners. An Ontario dog believed to be the first in Canada to contract COVID-19. Let's welcome in our buddy Cliff the Vet. Dr. Cliff Redford joins us for more on this here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Cliff, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, this dog is in the Niagara region. What do we know uh, about this case, Cliff? So this dog uh, was part of a study done by essentially the University of Guelph, and they were basically taking cases where people in the house were confirmed carriers of COVID. And in this house, four out of the six people that lived there were positive. They had two dogs. They ran not only antibody tests to see if the dogs were kind of previously infected, but also what are called PCR or polymerase chain reaction a virus tests, and they confirmed on one dog a weak positive, so they think the dog is just getting over the infection. But the other dog is the first one in Canada that via both rectal and nasal swab actually had the live virus uh, in this dog. So it's not just a past infection. This dog was carrying the live virus. Okay, so we believe that the dog contracted COVID from the homeowners then? Yeah, that's going to have to be kind of assumed. Um, it is, it is, 
We think, uh, we suspect that it's very, very rare for dogs to spread it from one another. And the also that just because your dog spends so much time with you, the chance of the dog catching it from someone else and then giving it to the people in this house, just statistically speaking, sort of common sense speaking, is rare. So a lot of assumptions are being made, but they're, they're highly educated assumptions that these dogs caught it from the people. Okay, so what are medical officials and what are veterinarians such as yourself uh, saying about this? If somebody does test COVID positive, up until now we've been isolating and quarantining ourselves inside our home and maybe from our loved ones and not sharing bathrooms. Should we be quarantining or isolating ourselves from our dogs, from our pets? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, us veterinarians are always talking about that uh, cats and dogs are part of the family. And at this point, isolating uh, from, from the public if you're COVID positive is a family affair. So you should be isolating your dog as well. If I were to come down COVID positive, I would no longer be walking my dog out in the, you know, out in the parks and on the streets. I would be having to rely on my backyard. I certainly wouldn't be getting a dog walker to walk my dog. Uh, and unless it's really sick, don't take it to the veterinarian, please. Um, keep it at home. Um, yeah, you have to assume that your dog is a carrier. Uh, we don't think that they're, the chance of them sort of spreading that virus from a dog to a person is very low. So I don't want people to worry too much. Um, and the reason we think it's low is the, the window of infectious rate, the time that the dog has the live virus is extremely short, uh, different than than in people. But we don't exactly know what that time frame is and how long it's going to happen for. And, and, you know, is it at the beginning of when I'm positive or near the end? So if I'm isolating because I'm known positive, I need to isolate with my dog, which is fine. We'll, we'll sit down and watch uh, global news and, and enjoy the time. <laughs> So, in other words, if it's a 14-day quarantine, excuse me for uh, humans, uh, dogs and other animals maybe are not shedding the virus uh, as long, so it might be like a four-day thing, we just don't know? Well, yeah, we don't know, and it's probably even shorter than four days, but the problem is, is um, I might be shedding it for 14 days, and so is it possible that my dog gets it on day one? Yes, therefore they should isolate for a couple of days, let's say. But it's also possible that my dog then gets it on day 12. We don't know. Um, and the majority of the studies that have been done um, have shown a pretty high number. Like there's in, in Canada alone, 20% of dogs that are tested for antibodies, so that previous infection, they're not infectious, 20% of them from positive COVID homes carried it. 50% of cats carried it or carried the antibodies, so they at one point were infected. So you, you just have to assume during that 14 days, uh, your dog is now your best friend, as it should be all the time. Your cat is now your best friend, as it rarely is. I think it just wants you to feed it. Um, but you need to isolate. You need to isolate your animals with you as well. Yeah. Do dogs, by the way, Cliff, do we know, do they show symptoms of COVID, or are they just always asymptomatic? Um, they have so far been asymptomatic. Uh, we'll never say always. I mean, this is a, a novel coronavirus, so it's, it's rather new and it's a little bit different from the SARS back in the day. Um, but we have not seen indications where we have seen indications of cats getting sick. Um, there are even some of the big cats, the lions and tigers at the Bronx Zoo months ago showed some upper respiratory signs. 
basically we're telling the veterinarian community has been told by sort of the leaders in our in our medical association that if an animal comes in with respiratory signs even if they're from a covid positive house we're not to assume it's covid related we're supposed to rule all the other more common stuff out and if nothing else shows up then we're actually supposed to contact the office of the chief veterinarian of ontario through omafra and have them determine if this dog or cat is sick from COVID. But essentially, they are sort of victims of uh, this human disease, but they don't really get sick unless they have some serious health problems. Yeah, just finally, I thought dogs were immune from COVID. At least that's what we heard initially uh, when the pandemic uh, first hit. But like so many other things, I guess that changed? Yeah, I mean, we're learning uh, every day about this disease. and, And Again, we if I had to put my money down right now, I would say, you know, 99.999% of dogs who contract the disease, fight it off on their own and are not sick. Um, but eventually there may be one. Now maybe that dog has a compromised immune system due to certain drugs it's on or an autoimmune condition or it's on chemotherapy um, or it's severely old. Right I was going to ask that story. If you've got an older dog, uh, much like, uh, you know, elderly and people in long-term care, should we be worried a little more concerned about elderly dogs? I think you should always be a little bit more concerned. But again, I, I don't think it's something that I want people to lose sleep over. I mean, we just have to have some common sense. And the biggest issue is we need to recognize that our pets may act as carriers to a point where they can cause other animals and other people to get sick. And uh, Scott Weiss, the gentleman, the veterinarian who did this study out of University of Guelph, made a great point that if your house is isolating, since you're not going to go and kiss your neighbor while you're isolating, you shouldn't let your dog kiss your neighbor's dog or your neighbor or the kid or whatever, right? Like we just have to keep our dogs and our cats with us when we're isolating and, and don't take them for walks and don't let them interact with other people. Don't use the dog walker. And, of course, if it gets sick, then, then talk to the veterinarian and be honest with them that you are dealing with COVID positive in your house and we'll take the necessary precautions. But the likelihood of a dog getting truly sick from this is, is infinitesimal. All right, some uh, good advice, good information as always. Cliff, before I let you go, by the way, I understand you've got a brand new podcast that you've just uh, launched. Congratulations on that, and uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a podcast. It's got a very uh, original name. It's called the Dr. Cliff Podcast. (laughs) It's a working title. We're looking to change it. So uh, if you just Google Dr. Cliff Podcast, wherever wherever you can find podcasts, and it's basically kind of 80% vet life um, and 20% sort of adventures away from the clinic, which is probably how my work-life balance goes these days. So uh, check it out. I'd love it. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, I think. Okay. I love the title, by the way, and that's coming from somebody who hosts something called The Morning Show because it's on in the morning. So, in the morning. Yeah. There you go. I heard uh, you guys did great with Emmys and everything, right? They stole that uh, that name from you. Absolutely. You know what? Uh, our lawyers are in touch with Reese Witherspoon and Jen Aniston's lawyers. I'm, I'm sure they'll work it out. But uh, sure Cliff, thanks for the time as always. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Be well. There's our buddy, uh, Dr. Cliff, the vet. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.